You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I'll just read verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> this is the, uh, another of those I am statements. There are seven in the book, uh, in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and uh, we, saw, we looked last time at the Jesus is the light of the world. And tonight we'll see that Jesus is the door of the sheep. John 10, verse 7, hear now God's word. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In this text, we we meet this image of Jesus as the door of the sheep. And as you read uh, John 10, you'll see that this I am statement is very closely connected to the next one uh, in verse 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And so they are distinct, and they are uh, maybe hinting at something a little bit different, but they are related images as we think of Jesus as the door. In John chapter 10, Jesus uses all sorts of pastoral imagery of sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds and gates. Uh, and there's a lot of different metaphors uh, going on here of Jesus as communicating a biblical truth. And so it's important as you read this, maybe you've read all of chapter 10 and, and you're getting all of these different metaphors and Jesus enters through the door in, in verses 1 through 5, but now he says he is the door and then he says he's the shepherd. I, I'm confused. Well, there is a, a lot of different metaphors. No one consistent metaphor is being looked at. But tonight we're looking at this metaphor of Jesus as the door of the sheep. And I think there are two realities, at least, that uh, this idea is trying to communicate. So number one there in your outline, Jesus is the true leader of Israel. Jesus is the true leader of Israel. I put Israel here, and I put people of God in the second point, just because First and foremost, Jesus is speaking to Jews here, uh, and, and, as, uh, and this idea of they're rejecting the Messiah. But yet, as we know, Israel can be a broader concept of God's people, but we, we don't want to miss the, the context that this is in of speaking to the actual Jewish people. It's important that when Jesus says he's the door to remember the context in which this whole, uh, what precedes this imagery of Jesus saying that he is the door. And in chapter 9, Jesus uh, heals the man that was born blind. And do you remember, he, he heals them, word gets out, the religious leaders get involved, they, you know, they confirm through his parents that he actually was born blind and now he can see, and they, they question him. Uh, incessantly, uh, how exactly were you, were you healed? 
And, and it leads to an exchange of, of them saying, why are you asking me so many of these questions? Do you want to be Jesus' disciple? And they're, they're indignant, and it doesn't go well for this man, and he's eventually kicked out of the synagogue because uh, he makes the, the obvious point that, well, someone that can heal the blind obviously has God's favor. So I know you all are, are religious leaders, but if you haven't figured that out, uh, something's a matter. Which leads to him uh, being kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus reveals himself even more clearly to this man, and he sees more fully that he is the Messiah, Savior. And then if you look in verse 39 of chapter 9, Jesus says this, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those that who see may become blind. So some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so Jesus is confronting the unbelief of the Pharisees, that they of all people should have been able to see the reality of who he was as the true leader of Israel, as their Savior, as the Messiah, and yet they reject him. And so Jesus then launches in uh, to this uh, uh, multiple metaphors on the sheep and the sheepfold. And and we get to the door and Jesus saying, I am the door. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the true leader of Israel. And he's contrasting himself to both the present leaders of Israel and others who have come before that, that they, they were not uh, the true leaders of Israel. These, these wicked kings, these false messiahs who maybe have popped up and claimed uh, to be the savior of Israel. And, and what do these false leaders do? Verse 8, they're thieves and robbers. In the earlier metaphor, the, they come in from the outside. They don't come through the door. They, they climb over the wall. And what is the purpose of the thief and the robber in verse 10? They steal, they kill, and they destroy. They're up to no good. They don't care actually about the sheep. They they, want to steal from the sheep, they want to kill if they have to, and they want to destroy the sheep for their own purpose and selfish gain. Contrast that to a true shepherd that wants to protect and provide for his sheep rather than selfishly rob from the sheep. And so Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these these people that were, were to lead the people of Israel. That, yeah, they put on a, a persona of piety. They put on a persona of godliness and care for people, but Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. They like to look like they are godly leaders, but they are far from it. They are using the people to gain their own things, whatever they may be. They love the praise of the people. They love to put burdens on the people that God never put burdens on. They love to take their money. 
that these people should be used to, to helping their own family, but instead they're, they're, they're devoting it to God, supposedly. They wanted power. Do you remember the, uh, the religious leaders in, in <clears throat> debating uh, Jesus' crucifixion? One of the things that they were concerned about is Jesus is gaining popularity, which means we're losing our power. We're losing our influence. Rather than rightfully give it up to whom it is owed, they wanted that themselves. So instead of actually feeding the people as they should, instead of actually leading them in a godly way, their leadership was making sons of the devil. And this was true of Israel's uh, times past. Likely in Jesus' mind in this passage is Ezekiel 34. I'll just read a few verses there. That that the leaders of Israel, and they're called shepherds now here, so this shepherd imagery is coming out even more. They're confronted. God says to them, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You're supposed to be feeding the sheep, but you're just gluttonously indulging in your own gain. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost You have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Remember with the man born blind, one of the things that the Pharisees were upset about is Jesus did this on a Sabbath. You know, wouldn't want to do good to someone on a Sabbath day. A true true shepherd would, would, would care and want the sheep healed even on a Sabbath day. That these old, these shepherds in Ezekiel's days were, were gaining selfishly. The, the leaders of Jesus' day were gaining selfishly. And any other self acclaimed Messiah that rose up, they, they, they want their own power, they want their own wealth, they were not really doing it out of love for God and others. And that's true of many you know, saviors today. We're just beginning an election season, and all every sort of politician is going to make all sorts of boasts how they can, you know, fix the world. Really, if you vote for them. But as we know, likely many, many, many politicians are in it for their own gain. They use their political office to to gain wealth, to gain power, prestige, or whatever, rather than care. For the people. This is true of totalitarian leaders throughout the world. And in these countries, they're, they're almost worshipped as God. They're, they're our Savior. They're, they're our hope. We worship the state. And we see that, that that never goes well for the people. As one writer said, the world still seeks its humanistic political saviors. It's Hitler's, it's Stalin's, it's Mao's, it's Pol Pot's. And only too late does it learn that they blatantly confiscate personal property. They come only to steal. Ruthlessly trample human life underfoot. They come only to kill. 
and contemptuously savage all that is valuable. They come only to destroy. Jesus is right. It is not the Christian doctrine of heaven that is the myth, but the humanist dream of utopia. So all these worldly leaders now and then are, are making all sorts of boasts that, that they, they, they are truly the leader of Israel. But they're all out for their selfish gain and contrast that to now the true shepherd, the true leader of Israel, Jesus. God always had a, a shepherd for, for the people of God. And, and some were very good. We can think of Moses, really the first leader of Israel, that, that he was a righteous man and he, and he did shepherd the people of Israel. Yeah, turn with me to Numbers 27. I believe there's a connection with our passage here. But remember that Moses was the people's leader and intercessor really after they said, we don't really want God to speak to us directly. We don't really want God to, to rule over us uh, so uh, straightforwardly. We, we want, uh, you speak to Moses and he'll speak to us. And so Moses does lead these people, but then Moses is getting older and he's concerned about another leader. And in Numbers 27, verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. You see the, the verbal connection, at least to our passage of a shepherd, leads the sheep out and in. He, he helps them to find the pasture that they need. And so uh, Moses is saying, we want, we want a true shepherd. We want someone that cares for the people and will take care of the people. And even a likely more verbal, not that Joshua's name is, is maybe directly prophetic, but, but it would have been in people's mind that Joshua's name is the same as Jesus' name in Greek. So the, the former Jesus pictures the latter Jesus, or the former Joshua pictures the latter Joshua. So God's people always had a, a succession of shepherds. Where does this image of the gate come from? I think at least one Old Testament text is Psalm 118, if you want to turn there. This is one of those psalms <clears throat> sung before the Passover. In Psalm 118, verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And so likely, this, this passage with 
Joshua and Numbers seven is is uh, Numbers twenty seven is is uh, important to our text of Jesus as the as the door. But the actual uh, image of the door likely comes from this text that this gate symbolizes uh, entrance into life with God here in Psalm one eighteen likely. And so if Psalm 118 is, is used here, and that's the imagery that Jesus is, is drawing from for this, this idea of the door, then, then likely uh, Psalm 18 in larger context is, would be on his mind thinking about this. And this is an important point when, on interpreting the use of the Old Testament in the New. That if uh, uh, Old Testament verse is quoted... It's important not just to look at that verse, but it's important to look at the whole context on which that whole verse is found in the Old Testament. Because likely, in fact, likely most of the time, the author is, isn't just using a single verse, but is, has the whole context in mind. And so that sometimes going back fleshes out our understanding of the use of the Old Testament. So if Psalm 18's larger context is on Jesus' mind, what else is in this psalm that we could connect to this text here? Well, after this gate of the Lord in verse 20, uh, the psalmist writes in verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so it is very interesting that in a, in a passage that Jesus is talking about him as the door, that likely comes from Psalm 118, that in the same context, Jesus is talking to a crowd that has rejected him. And in fact, that's what that's what. Uh, verse 6 of our, of our passage brings that up, that they didn't get the first uh, sheep and shepherd metaphor from verses 1 through 5 in chapter 10. In verse 6 it tells us the, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So then Jesus says again to them, uh, another metaphor uh, as him as shepherd, as him as door. So he's speaking to them in the context of Psalm 118, and the part of Psalm 118 is this idea that there's this cornerstone that's going to be rejected by the builders. And here is Jesus being rejected by the leaders of Israel as the true leader of Israel. Which signifies for us that part of being the true leader of Israel is to suffer rejection and death from Israel itself. So ironically, Jesus is is only all the more pointing out the reality that he's the door of the sheep. By speaking this and then rejecting him is actually affirming that he is what he says he, he says he is. He's the true leader of Israel. Secondly, Jesus is the real life giver for God's people. To come to Jesus is to find pasture, to go in and out, and to have life. Three things I want us to see here of Jesus as, uh, that, that happen as Jesus as life giver. First, you will be saved. 
Jesus says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This is very simple gospel truth. Saved from what? Saved from our sin. Delivered, rescued, saved from the wrath of God, which we deserve for the punishment of our sin. Saved from hell. Saved from death. You're rescued. You're ransomed. You're redeemed. And and this uh, uh, we have through Jesus. That we had this sentence of death against us. We had this indictment of guilt. That if we had to pay that penalty, it it would take eternity. And we could never exhaust the penalty. Yet Jesus comes, Jesus lives the perfect life, Jesus offers himself as that rejected Messiah, but it's in in his rejection that he's paying the price for our sin, paying the, the wrath of God for our sin, that then he saves us. You know, we talk about getting saved. When were you saved? That's a very biblical concept. You come to Jesus as the life giver, you will be saved. Secondly, you will go in and out and find pasture. That's what Jesus says. You might say, well, I'm not a sheep. I don't need pasture. Well, this, this is language from uh, the, the blessings of being in the, the covenant from, from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, verse 6. I'll just read that. One of the blessings... For obedience to God's covenant was blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. So Jesus is is picking up on this language and and using it as as you will have all the blessings of being in covenant relationship with God that the people of Israel, if they had obeyed the terms of the covenant, God would provide for them. They they would have their, their borders would be protected, that they would have abundance of food. They would come in and out of their cities and 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 live their life and find pasture. So, so Jesus said, if you, you come to me, you will be protected, you will be provided for. You will go in and out and find pasture. Thirdly, that you will have abundant life. In verse 10, as opposed to the thief that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We're not saved by the skin of our teeth. We're saved abundantly. We've had a lot of different fires this summer. And imagine in the midst of a fire of total destruction, that as the fire approaches a certain house, a piece of property, that it it doesn't touch a single piece of that property, of that house. Not a, gra- not a blade of grass is, is hurt. Not a leaf is burned. Not even the smell of smoke enters a certain property. That the whole house, the whole property is saved. As opposed to the, the, the people that run out 
of their house at the last minute and, and only their lives are spared and their whole house and livelihood is destroyed. They, they're barely saved. But I think that picture of that, that house standing amidst destruction is, a, is part of a picture of God's salvation to us. We're saved abundantly. We see this uh, portrayed for us in, in other passages. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have this sentence of death. Jesus comes, he saves us from the, the penalty of our sin, but it's not as if we just live uh, then mediocrely the rest of our lives in heaven. That, that we just are, are just, just saved. Now, why, why does God save us? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I have no idea what that is. But it's far better than just your, your life, just mere existence, that you will have life you will have it abundantly, forever, experiencing the immeasurable riches of His grace, meaning they will never be exhausted for all of eternity. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, What I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That, that Jesus comes to give us abundant life, life to its fullest. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can testify to that. Apart from your, uh, your life before Christ, you can say, I have real life now. I thought I had real life then. I have real life now. Doesn't mean your life is easier now than it was then. In fact, it's probably the opposite. But you've tasted of that real life that before you were just physically alive. Now, You're both physically and spiritually alive. You are fully alive as you were to be as a full human being. You're vitally connected to the living God, and that brings true life. So Jesus came, lived, and died so that we might have abundant life. And this all comes by his death for us. This abundant life comes because Jesus sheds his blood for us. Jesus gives his body for us. He pays the ransom for our sin. He defeats our greatest enemy. And he gives us access to this life with God through his sacrificial work. Which before we think about this in terms of, of believers, it, it begs the question, <clears throat> if you're here tonight, are you in the sheepfold? 
Are you in the sheepfold of Jesus? How do you know if you're in the sheepfold of Jesus? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The the robbers, the thieves came in times past, but Jesus says the sheep did not listen to them because the sheep knows their shepherd's voice. So do, do you hear the shepherd's voice? That Jesus is the only door. <clears throat> he is the door of the sheep. Jesus is the only access that we have to life with God. That contrary to, to growing opinion, there are not many ways to God. You can have Jesus, he'll lead you to God. You can, you can try uh, Allah, he'll, he heals access to God. You can try some sort of meditation and that will bring you a spiritual life. No, Jesus says, I am the door, the only door. And there's only one door. And I am that door. And if you want to have life, you have to come through me. He warned in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, the narrow door. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus said there's a broad gate, there's a broad road and many are on it. And many think that the end of this road leads to life, but it actually leads to destruction and death. But outside of that wide passage, there is a narrow gate. And it's small, and it's hard to enter that. And few find it. But those who do, it leads to life. How narrow is that gate? It's as narrow as the space between one pierced hand to the other. Because the gate is Jesus. If you repent and believe, you are his sheep. And you will have life and have it abundantly. But for us who have experienced this abundant life, We've experienced this salvation. We've we've come tonight to reflect on that. We've come to reflect on the Lord's death for us in the Lord's Supper. We've, We've come to be reminded of these great truths of salvation, that Jesus is your door, and you have entered, and you have found pasture, and you've been saved, and you have this abundant life. That in Christ you're saved, you're protected, you're provided for. You have life to its fullest, both now and for all eternity. And in a small way, we get to taste that abundant life. As we gather weekly to praise God's name, as we gather to pray, to hear God's word preached and fellowshiped with one another, we experience in a small way that abundant life 
that is ours now and will be ours more fully in all eternity. That in the Lord's Supper, in a very tangible way, Paul says this is, a, this, is a, this is communion. This is a participation in the body and blood of Christ that we, by the Spirit of God, experience communion with our God and with one another as we remember the Lord's life and death. Because Psalm 118, I think, was important for this passage, I think it's important we end in Psalm 118. The gate of the Lord, the, the righteous enter through this gate. We're reminded that there is a, a stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what else? What does this psalm remind us? What does the next verse say in Psalm 118? This is the Lord's doing. It was God's plan to, to have this stone rejected, and that rejection was actually the means of that stone becoming a cornerstone. That this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. What day has the Lord made? He made the day of Jesus' rejection and crucifixion. He made that day when Jesus suffered on, on the cross. Why? Because it was through that and only through that that we can gain life with God. So what is the proper response? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are without words to express the greatness of your salvation to us in Jesus Christ. But we do thank you for all of us who are now partakers of grace, that we've been saved, that we we are in the sheepfold and go in and out and find pasture, and, and we have this abundant life both here and now. I pray that that is true for everyone in this room, that they might... Taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.